It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's flip gears. Let's head back to the geopolitics of it all and the impact it has on the market. I, you know, the news coming out of Israel uh, that I'm reading out on the Bloomberg Terminal here, Israel and Hamas agreed to a short truce for hostage release. Hamas agrees to free 50 hostages, possibly more in days ahead. The deal would mark uh, the first lull in the war uh, since the attacks on October 7th. So I guess, if nothing else, that in and of itself is probably uh, some good news. Bobby Ghost joins us. He's an editor with Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us live here in our New York studio. Bobby, I mean, just to me, it feels like good news, maybe a little bit of thawing here. How do you read it? I wouldn't go quite so far as to say yep. there's a thaw. It is good news. Okay. Look, uh, it's great news for the hostages and their families. It gives um, ordinary civilians in Gaza a break from the bombing. It's a cessation of hostilities for four days. And Israel is already saying, Prime Minister Netanyahu is already saying, moment that ends, we go back to bombing Gaza. We go back to fighting Hamas. So there's, you know... It's, it's not really a thaw. It's, okay. a, it's a deal that was struck in Qatar with very strong pressure from the United States on all parties to make this happen. Um, and, and we should thank God for small mercies, as they say. And as I said, for the, the people who are benefiting the most from this deal, the mercies are not small. They're quite Absolutely. Uh, we're seeing 50 hostages from Gaza will be freed. Um, and the release of 150 Palestinians who are in Israeli jails at the moment. Um, But tell us, Bobby, because this is exactly what Israel has not wanted in the sense that any pause is a chance for Hamas to regroup, get the military operations back together. I mean, this is, is... is that something to be feared then, that like there could really be maybe an escalation in the violence after this? I think it's. I think this is why it's taken this long for the truce to happen. Israel had to be absolutely certain that the chances of Hamas regrouping and rearming were, were as small as possible. Um, if 
I mean, there's always that possibility, but Israel would not have made this deal if it didn't have a high degree of confidence that it can prevent that from happening or it can manage how much Hamas uh, rearms. Um, presumably, this means it'll be paying much closer attention to the borders, much closer attention to those tunnels through Egypt to make sure that Hamas does not get. And it has already wrought so much damage on, on Hamas infrastructure that there must be a high degree of confidence that you know Hamas's arms making facilities in Gaza City for instance will be will not easily be revived in okay, four so days. Okay, so that's kind of where I wanted to go because yeah. I know that the stated objective of Israel is to destroy Hamas and its leadership. Yeah. How do you define that? How do you know when it's happened? If it, I, I I kind of fear it's like the drug cartel, you take out one kingpin and then the next person just rises right up again. Yeah, this is not a, they're not fighting a conventional military. Right. This is a terrorist group. Uh, and, it, you know, it, the leadership can change and has changed. Israel has a long history of taking out top Hamas leaders. The thing just keeps coming back. And you also have to remember that uh, in the process of trying to eliminate Hamas in this way, it's also creating the the circumstances the the for Hamas to be able to recruit yeah, you've got sure. hundreds of thousands of young uh, Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere who are outraged by what they see and a small proportion of that population will be um, more amenable to joining Hamas now shall we say than they were before so it's you know this is not a, this is not the kind of war where, where which ends with people signing an armistice mm -hmm. and, and making a peace deal and that's been the problem the Biden administration has said consistently from the beginning that they're they've been asking the Israelis to define what victory looks like and explain what happens the day after and until now the Israelis have not provided that information. They've not communicated it in, in private to the Biden administration. They certainly have not communicated it publicly. And of course, whatever that timeline may be as well is uh, probably pretty daunting to think of like the task ahead, how long that may take. But makes me wonder if there could be perhaps the need for more um, ceasefires in the, in the time to get to that end point. Yeah, so we'll see if this one works. Um, and and everybody shows good faith and that then hopefully creates the the circumstances for another one down the line and another one and and maybe this is the kind of conf conflict where because everyone is so painted into their own corners or the opposite ends of the room that the advances that can only be incremental um it, it might be that this is the only way slow painful deadly as it is this might be the only way we begin to move towards some kind of resolution is there a scenario where israel does not end up occupying gaza i can't think of a scenario where they don't to preserve yeah. the peace i mean is it does the un play a role i mean what do we think about the day after well so the, here's the thing uh, now israel has signaled that it it is willing to do that in order to make sure hamas does not come back um but it's this is not a popular idea among israelis right for a start, Israelis don't want an occupation of, of Gaza because they know what that will entail, not just in terms of costs, but also the risks that come with that. Nobody else wants to do that. Nobody else wants to perform that role. I, I don't think any Western peacekeepers would have credibility there. Uh, the United Nations will eventually have to play a role, but until now, um, you know, Secretary General Guterres has been sort of saying, look, we're not 
this is not going to become a protectorate of the United Nations. Um, the Arab countries who would logically um, be part of um, the biggest part of any peacekeeping effort, their view is, why should we clean up Israel's mess? Um, this can't become a thing where you go in and bomb uh, Palestine or parts of Palestinian uh, territories to smithereens and expect us to come and clean it up for you afterwards. So there's going to be a lot of reluctance. The crucial question for everybody is peacekeeping toward what end? Mm -hmm. If there is a clear path after the fighting is over for a two-state solution, then I can see, and they're sort of cast iron guarantees to that, then I can see the Arab states saying, all right, we'll, we'll take some of this responsibility if there's a clear path that this never happens again. All right. So on that two-state solution, who is the biggest impediment to that actually happening at this point? Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many yeah. uh, uh, impediments and at different times, they, you know, their relative yep. uh, weight changes. But uh, Israel is an impediment. Uh, the, the current administration in Israel, the coalition government that Benjamin Netanyahu has put together, has no interest in a two-state uh, uh, solution. Many of his partners have openly said that's not what they want, they, that they will oppose it. Um, the Palestinian Authority, which is deeply corrupt, um, deeply, completely inept, um, and, and has not dared to test its popularity with an election in years and years and years. They are an impediment. And of course, Hamas. And Hamas's enablers. is Iran is a very big part of the peace problem too. So yeah, the problem, a problem this intractable and this complicated, uh, there are lots of people who have to share the blame. Just really quickly here, Bobby, in our last 30, if you could just explain to us what this second stage could look like with a possible extension to free more hostages. Well, so there's some talk that after these 50, if Hamas continues to release hostages in a, in a sort of steady uh, um, sort of 10 a day, 15 a day, then there's some hope that the, the cessation of hostilities, the truce, can be extended. Um, again, this is something we should all hope for and keep our fingers crossed that it happens. Um, but we'll believe it when it happens. Yep, absolutely. All right, Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. Bobby Ghosh, he's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's got a tremendous amount of experience uh, in international affairs reporting, uh, certainly in that part of the world over there in the Middle East. We appreciate getting a few minutes of his time uh, here. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Taint. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, let's round table this open AI. I'm going to call it a debacle, and that's editorializing, but that's just, it just seems to me it's a debacle, and I think Silicon Valley should be embarrassed by what's happened over the last four or five days. Um, but we're going to bring in some smart people who analyze this stuff much better than I do. Mandeep Singh, he's a senior tech analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Ed Ludlow, a Bloomberg technology host out in San Francisco, uh, so that he has to take some of the blame because he's part of the culture out there. Ed, I mean, I guess we have Sam Altman going back to OpenAI. I guess that's good news. The next question I think most people have is, who's going to be on this board? And will it be an effective board? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the mechanics of it are that uh, Brett Taylor, who was once the co-CEO of Salesforce, but he's, I guess he's more famous for being the chairman of Twitter that sold to Elon Musk, uh, is yep. taking a board seat. Then you have Larry Summers, well known to this program, this network. Um, reminder that he, Larry Summers is a paid contributor to, to Bloomberg Television. I'm supposed to say that. Sure. Um, and then beyond that, the, the news for me is that, and this is, you know, we've, we've covered the ins and outs of the negotiation pretty closely, right, guys? That I know that Sam Altman and Greg Brockman were pushing really hard to get at least temporary board seats in this whole thing, but they didn't. So this thing's far from settled. The reason I'm late, and I apologize for that, is I was on the phone with the source who's involved in all of this, and Sam Altman goes back. Most people get what they wanted, but it ain't the end of the story. There's a lot we still have to find out. Well, you know, I would like to bring in Mandeep here because this has been, as Paul said, a very chaotic four or five days. And for those of us who are maybe just joining, Mandeep, if you could take us back to when Sam Altman was suddenly ousted from OpenAI. Again, I don't think we have really a reason yet as to why that happened, but maybe if you could give us a timeline of what has transpired from then to now. Well, I mean, uh, clearly, uh, you know, it was a shocker to everyone in terms of the way he was ousted, and there wasn't any transparency around the reasons. Uh, in fact, when they made the three uh, new board member announcement today, they said there will be an independent investigation. So clearly, there's a lot to unpack, as Ed was alluding to. But look, uh, for a company like OpenAI that has a convoluted structure, so last week, they, uh, it, I think it came into focus that they have a profit structure within a nonprofit. <laughs> and now we are trying to you know, make sense of what would a good governance structure look like? Uh, we have three board members. We know this is pretty unusual, the CEO not being on the board. So if Sam is going back to be the CEO and he's not on yeah. the board, who the other board members are, there is so much to you know, talk about here. And this is not the way it's going to pan out. I mean, uh, the reason why no one cared until last week is because you know, OpenAI was a startup and you know, it had the backing of Microsoft. So corporate governance wasn't as big of a focus, but the way he was ousted, it's like, this is so unusual. And I, I'm sure a lot of the startups are thinking about their corporate structure now, you know, and, and the, their backers, the VCs and the early investors. Ed, what are you hearing from your sources out there as to maybe the value, the impact on the value of this company here? Has this it been question. really impacted negatively and how so? Uh, I love this question. Uh, for me, this is the question because the story of the last five days is that OpenAI's valuation, which right now, based on a transaction we can get into that's pending, is $86 billion. I reported a couple of months ago, revenue has a run rate of about a billion dollars for this year. 
billion dollars of sales, $86 billion valuation. Yep. Wow. And the basics of this for the audience listening all around the world is we care because OpenAI is the leading AI startup. Let, let's just accept that as a baseline. What we learned is that its value is is intimately tied to the intellectual capital that's there. In other words, Sam Altman, Greg Brockman, and the 768 other people that work there, all of them uh, started a mutiny to try and bring Sam back. They were successful, but there was a real threat that all 770 employees would just resign. They would just leave. Then what are you left with? A very large building in downtown San Francisco with incredible compute costs and no one in it. Um, that's, that's the way to frame it, right? I don't think that that's unreasonable. And sources this morning keep phoning me and saying, that's the story. Like, on paper, you know, the people behind this, there aren't that many of them. And I think, yeah, sorry, guys, I, you know, I jump in. But, that, but for me, that's, that's the kind yeah. of key point. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. And um, I mean, Mandeep, maybe you can help us, like, you know, break down this math a little bit here as, um, you know, as we, we're just hearing that, We've got one billion in revenue to an eighty-six billion valuation. I mean, my head is spinning. What does that make sense to you? Well, so look at you know all the startups, and you can go back in time in terms of you know the uh, companies that have ridden these technology waves. Uh, there is that promise. Okay, if you have a breakthrough technology, investors don't really focus that much on the revenue that you have right now, but the potential. And Isn't in that WeWork's problem? Uh, well, I, I think <laughs> this is different. Uh, OpenAI does have an intellectual property, and they okay. are foundational. I mean, think of NVIDIA, right? They are foundational to what is going on in AI with their chips. Well, this is another foundational element in terms of, you know, uh, a lot of companies are standardizing on OpenAI's base model, and they have embedded it in their tech stack. Everything is happening on top of what OpenAI is offering at the baseline in terms of a large language model. But now I think it puts doubts in the mind because think of operating system. Like Windows operating system was the standard on which all these applications were built. OpenAI had that kind of aura and suddenly that has put doubts and that's why there was this high valuation. So I, I'm not surprised by the valuation but the chain of events has kind of put doubts in people's mind right now. Hey, Ed, to be honest, before this, I really didn't know who Sam Altman was, and I certainly wasn't aware of the kind of the presence he really does command within a tech space and within Silicon Valley. Right. How, how do you think, I mean, where does he go from here? I mean, it seems like he's going to be the focus of, now I'm going to pay attention to whatever he says and does going forward. I mean, it's, his role in, in all of this, it's taken a much higher profile. Yeah, look, uh, Sam Altman is a serial entrepreneur, a serial founder. He has been a name out here in Silicon Valley for some time. He has really been thrust to prominence as OpenAI became the face of, of AI. You know, that's the reality of it in, in the last year. Um, you know, he's just beloved by the OpenAI staff. You know, I, I'm not exaggerating. Almost the entirety of OpenAI's entire company threatened to resign if he was not brought back. The investors love him. The investors were adamant that he came back and that they were behind the scenes trying to do that, including Microsoft, right? Satya Nadella, the Microsoft CEO, was a real peace broker in all of this, we understand. Um, and yet, this is why I say that this story is not finished. There will be an independent investigation as to why the board fired him in the first place. We have got no idea, to be frank, why they did that. Uh, I just, you know, without being self-serving, um, 
I did report on Saturday as an example that he was out there weeks within the last few weeks raising almost $100 billion for a new chip company to take on NVIDIA, make custom silicon for training AI models. $100 billion from a standing start. That's the kind of yep. ca command he has and the investors like SoftBank, Mubadala, they were willing to jump in. I mean, uh, the one thing I would point out is, you know, whenever a founder gets more attention than the company, yep. that's never a good thing. If you go back in time, you know, the yeah. focus is just on the founder and what he's doing. Uh, that hasn't been viewed very well by the investors. And if they are thinking about doing an IPO, that's the last thing you want is the founder getting all the focus and taking, uh, the, you know, the focus away from the core product, which is the large language model they have developed. Could say it sounds like another Sam, perhaps, of FTX. <laughs> I hope so now we're not even going to go there. <laughs> oh, Ed oh Ludlow, thank goodness. you so much for joining us. Ed Ludlow, he's in our San Francisco office. Uh, he is embedded in that Silicon Valley uh, space. And then uh, Mandeep Singh, he's our senior technology analyst here at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's seen it all. He's seen the, the tech come and go. He's seen the tech moguls come and go. Uh, so we appreciate getting their perspective. So it seems like it's quieting down there in Silicon Valley in open AI. Uh, and now we'll just see how it's kind of fleshes out the board and some governance issues and some ownership. And, you know, but I guess the Easy last things. five days, yeah, it's, it's just kind of like a, a do over. So we'll keep on top of that. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Shri Kumar. He's the president of Sri Kumar Global Strategies, former chief global strategist and chairman at Asset Allocation Committee at TCW Group, a little asset manager out there in LA. But the highlight on his extensive resume for me, former senior vice president at Drexel Burnham Lambert. Those folks, mm. they were slinging it back in the day. <laughs> I mean, they were slinging it back in the day, folks. Sri, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you're based out in LA, but we, you're in New York, so we appreciate you, you coming in here to our New York studio. Talk to us about how you view 2023. We're closing out a pretty decent year here for most, uh, you know, most markets here. Closing out 2023 and how are you thinking about 2024? Paul, great questions. And I think 2023, we had expected by now to be in recession, which has not come. Yep. Uh, the labor market is very strong. The consumer spending is very strong. I think what was underestimated was the extent of stimulus there was in the system both in terms of the fiscal stimulus, which came from the final months of the Trump administration, first few months of the Biden administration. And don't forget, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve doubled from bloated levels mm. from the beginning of COVID to the beginning of 2022. And we had zero interest rates for a long period of yep. time. So everybody loaded up and one and a half years later after the tightening began, I think we are still not back yet. But the point I make and I say to my clients is that recession is something that has been postponed, but it's not, it's been delayed, but it's not denied. So I think we are still going to see signs of a recession. And what I, worries me the most is as you have interest rates having risen and the balance sheet of the Fed is still being tightened, it yep. did not pause. And when the two of them go together, that there is something that's going to break in the system in the first half of 2024. So how do you then distinguish between what a lot of people will say right now are signs that we're heading toward a soft landing and that 
you're um, in the camp here that recession is still a possibility. Yeah, I do not believe in soft landing, Molly. And I, I would think that when you look at what has happened in past history, it all looks very nice until the thing gets out of control. It happened with 2007. And toward the end of the year, we had the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke, say to us that the subprime mortgage situation was just a 50 to $100 billion problem. We found out in the next year, 2008, it was just a terrible situation, not just a minor problem. Same thing happened in 1998 when you had long-term capital management, a small hedge fund, <laughs> which was never going to fail because two Nobel Prize winners ran it. Ex-Solomon Brothers. Right? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was done with, uh, again, with no leverage, it was thought, but then they had enormous amount of leverage and a lot of risk and it failed as well. So it is all, I like to say that it is all lit up until it darkens, the opposite of what we normally say. Is there some event out there that you're concerned could be that long-term capital management moment or could be the uh, subprime issue for in 2007, 2000? Is there something out there that concerns you in terms of catalyst? Paul, I have a few candidates. One is, I had, I had said before the March regional banking crisis that mm -hmm. might be a credit event, but we survived that. It yep. was a credit event. The next one, my top candidate, is a bigger banking institution, maybe an institution which is medium-sized. Mm -hmm. And why do they suffer? They suffer because they loaded up on long-dated bonds when Jerome Powell told us inflation is going to be transitory. So in that case, I should buy 10-year treasuries at 2% because I'm expecting it to go to 1%, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't. It went the other way. So that's one candidate. Wouldn't that have already happened, though, by now? If that were to blow up, you know, similar to the small banks that we saw in March? Um, not yet, Molly, and I'll tell you why I think it hasn't happened yet. If you look at the bank numbers, the deposits with the U.S. banking system has been steadily going down. Mm -hmm. The delinquency rate is starting to pick up, and the balance sheet is being reduced as far as the Fed is concerned. When you put them all together, suddenly something clicks. It doesn't, it doesn't happen gradually. So which is why I think timing-wise, I would look for the first quarter of 2024 is when something breaks again. Okay. So we talked about commercial real estate as the third. You can also have, again, a crunch on the credit side, which is already taking place. My final candidate is a repeat of what happened in the United Kingdom, September, October of 2022. Bond yields rise a lot. There it was the gilt yields, and here we are talking about treasury yields, and pension funds incur huge losses. They have not done well in terms of general performance, and that situation worsens and puts pressure on the Fed. One of the things as we think about this economy in a hard landing, soft landing recession is the labor market. We got some more labor data today. Initial jobless claims came in at you know 209,000, below expectations, less than we saw last month. I mean, this labor market seems to defy most logic in how robust it is. What do you make of the U.S. labor market? Um, yes, the labor market so far has been very robust, and I think the reason um, that has been the case, once again, traces back to the amount of stimulus. There is so much money that you were able to give. And also the shortage of labor, which took place due to COVID with uh, one part of the working force, typically the wives, who stayed behind to provide childcare, that in turn reduced the workforce. I think we are just coming back to it. But if you look at the layoff numbers, Paul, 
you're seeing that after a period of very strong numbers, despite today's initial jobless claims, uh, the unemployment has started to rise. Yep. And they don't, once again, it doesn't rise gradually. And history tells you that it, when it rises, it just surges suddenly. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen in the next two mm. to three months. So let's go back to these stimulus payments, because there right now is such a debate in economic circles of how much excess savings the consumer has. I feel like I see a different report on this every day that savings are dwindling, there's nothing left. Another one will say there's more than we really thought and that's what's giving the consumer still a lot of gas right now to keep spending. Um, and same with like the on the credit side as well. You mentioned delinquencies are picking up and we've seen credit card balances getting higher, but as a share of total deposits still very low. So how do you assess right now these conflicting messages about the health of the consumer? That's again a very timely question. And I would answer you, Molly, by saying that while you, the aggregate numbers in terms of delinquency, the aggregate numbers still seem really uh, benign. Mm there is a difference across income groups, meaning the numbers are showing recently that even the consumer spending, a good chunk of the increase is coming from the highest one or 10% maximum in terms of the income groups. And the lower income groups are actually cutting back. Mm. Delinquency wise, the credit card delinquencies are the first to show up. And the reason is it is easy for you not to pay. You don't have to go and ask anybody to give you a loan. And so that is starting to happen. The next, if it starts to happen also in terms of what happens to the payments to the banks, then I would be even more concerned. But it is already happening with low middle income groups. It's not uh, happening yet with the high income groups. Hey, Shri, about 30 seconds left. A lot of geopolitical issues out there for uh, you know the investors to deal with. How concerned are you with, again, the Middle East and, uh, and Ukraine and what that means for maybe the global economy. I'm concerned, again, to reply to you very quickly, Paul, that I'm uh, concerned mostly from an economic side in what happens to inflation. Okay. And yes, today we are seeing a big drop in oil prices, but if, if the Hamas-Israel ceasefire doesn't happen or if it, does, if it breaks up, then you're talking about war escalating and that in turn would mean much higher oil prices. Oil prices are a nothing or a huge yep. problem, one extreme or the other, it either goes down or the oil price goes to $150 a barrel. And that's a risk we run for the geopolitical situation. Absolutely. Shri, thanks you so much for joining us. Shri Kumar, he's the president of Shri Kumar Global Strategies, based somewhere out in California, one of those beaches or something like that. But he's actually coming to the world capital, New York City. So we appreciate him coming into our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Earnings. Dear. Uh, They put out some numbers, I guess the beat current quarter results, but their guidance was very disappointing to the street. I see the stock's off about three and a half percent, but that's the high intraday high of the day. So it had been a lot lower earlier. Uh, Let's bring on the the analyst who follows this company, Chris Cialino. He's the industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us via Zoom from Princeton, New Jersey. So, Chris, talk to us about what we heard from uh, your good friends at Deer. Fairly conservative guidance heading into the print. Uh, just given what we've seen with softer commodity prices, lower farm income, and I think it was pretty well anticipated that the cycle was turning. Uh, but this outlook is materially below what we had anticipated. Uh, Deer's projecting net income will drop to about $8.8 billion at the midpoint next year. That implies roughly $28, $28.50 um, in earnings. Uh, which is 13% below the street. Um, You know, commodity prices are still at historically high levels above long-term averages. The age of the fleet is still quite old, uh, and farmer balance sheets are quite healthy. So we really see a a more modest downturn. This really sets just a low bar um, and really an overly conservative outlook. And it looks like, you know, this sector here, Chris, is uh, otherwise showing some other, you know, some other evidence of slowing. We saw that the uh, rival over to Deer, uh, CNH Industrial, said that it's reducing salaried workers, that their equipment sales are slumping. Um, and Corteva, which makes seeds, has also warned of a slowdown in demand from farmers. So tell us, you know, the broader outlook of the farming sector right now and um, really why people should be paying attention. Yeah, I mean, we hit peak production this past year. Um, So 2024 will be a slower or lower growth year. Um, This has been kind of well advertised by the pullback we've seen in commodity prices. CNH certainly cautioned when they reported uh, that volumes will be down in 2024. Uh, And we actually saw deer reduce production too at their Harvester Works factory in their fiscal 4Q. Um, in North America, inventory seem to be in good condition, but uh, as you look globally, um, Europe uh, and particularly South America, they plan to underproduce retail demand next year, so further production cuts to come. What's the lead time? Like, talk to us about the cycle for a company like Deer. I know it's a cyclical business and it's based upon farming, but just give us a describe the cycle for us. Yeah, I mean, ultimately they're driven by where crop prices are, and that ultimately dictates farmer incomes. <laughs> Uh, you know, we've had three very strong years here in North America. Um, so we were roughly 30% above mid-cycle in 2023, which was, you know, pretty comparable to the 2013 peak. Um, so it, again, it comes down to where crop prices are. They're still, you know, supportive of making capital investments, just not at the level we had seen over the last two years. Tell us, Chris, about some other markets that are really important for the farming space that, um, you know, Brazil probably being one of them and maybe some other regions in the world that uh, are really important when we're thinking about the outlook for farming. Yeah, if you think about the, the markets that matter most for deer, it's North America and it's Brazil. Those are the larger crop producing nations. They are uh, more conducive to the larger high horsepower equipment. Uh, which which drives uh, higher margins for deer, uh, and ultimately it, it is corn, soybeans, and wheat. 
um, those, are, those are what really move the needle. All right, Chris, I'm a farmer. I'm in Moline, Illinois. How often do I replace those big, big tractors that I love to drive that help me you know, get my crops out of the ground? Yeah, so if you think about a piece of large farm equipment, um, you know, typically the useful life runs about 15 years. Really? Uh, but that includes a pretty robust trade cycle of uh, four or five different users. Um, you know, some of the larger operations will, will swap out equipment more frequently, just given some of the technology and upgrades, um, uh, you know, really make farmers more productive and, and help lower some of the input costs. Um, and, and combines, you know, tend to have a little bit shorter useful life, used a little bit more intensively, particularly down in regions like South America. So when I, what's a combine? If I'm going to get one of those big combines that I see, you know, with the big cabs and they got all this, the bells and whistles, what's that going to set me back? You're going to have to break out the wallet. Okay. Um, you know, a, a large combine could run, you know, close to a million dollars with all the, the bells and whistles and the new technology. Um, they are a large capital investment. And so... I, I have to finance that, right? So if I got interest rates, they're no longer zero. So it's just like buying a car, isn't it? It's a lot more expensive. It is, but you know, interestingly enough, we've seen uh, you know higher interest rates. You know, to this point, really haven't had a detrimental impact on uh, equipment sales. And I think a lot of that has to do with you know crop prices were you know historically elevated. Farm income we set a record in 2022, so farmers have had a lot of money in their wallets. And we've actually seen a lot of farmers go out and buy equipment with cash, um, the exception being more at the smaller end, more consumer-driven products. Those had tend, uh, historically been a little bit more rate-sensitive. That being said now, with the pullback in crop prices um, and, and lower farm incomes, you're starting to see some of that interest rate sensitivity um, deteriorate some of the, the buying power for the larger operations. Let's uh, go back to the deer earnings call uh, that happened earlier today. Um, management t- brought up labor costs a lot as um, mentioning that this is the largest inflationary item within their production bucket and that a lot of it is contractual, mentioning that the labor contracts that they have in their factories have these scheduled step-ups in the year. So is that saying that labor costs are going to get even more expensive for deer? Yes. That being said, production costs we actually saw for the first time in three years this fiscal quarter turned into a tailwind. So while labor costs are going up, um, other costs are coming down, which is helping um, mitigate some of those higher uh, labor inflationary pressures. So net-net, they're anticipating 2024 that production costs will actually be a tailwind. So how, how's the supply chain here? I mean, I know for a while there, like the automobile industry, you know, the industrial equipment guys couldn't get the chips. Uh, they couldn't get some of the, the parts they need to build these things. How, how is the supply chain these days? The supply base has, you know, really normalized. Um, it, it really is not a factor at this point anymore. Um, there are pockets from time to time, but we've seen a normalized supply chain. Um, I'd expect you get a little bit of tailwind, some factory efficiencies as we move into next year, but uh, it's normal course of business. A lot of times when we see companies set really low guidance, my initial reaction, and maybe this is just the cynical person in (laughs) me, um, is thinking, oh, you know, setting the bar low so that they can, um, what's that phrase, Um, to um, under-expect, outperform? Yeah, under-promise, over-deliver. That's there, thank you. I knew you would say it better than me. (laughs) Is that, that, Chris, what you think is happening here, or it really is as dire as deer is making it out to be? 
No, I think that's exactly what's happening here. I think they set a very low bar, and I wouldn't be surprised to see beats and raises throughout the year. Um, you know, we had anticipated fairly conservative guidance, just given some of the macro uncertainty, farm economy uncertainty. So that was to be expected. But to, to see, you know, double-digit top-line declines across all businesses, um, pretty heavy decremental margins, you know, 35% plus, um, that's more indicative of a more severe contraction. We just don't see that as a realistic scenario at this stage. I remember when Chris was young and he wasn't so cynical. He would take management's guidance at face value, but now he's calling them out, saying uh, maybe they're kind of throwing in the kitchen sink here. Uh, I'm that's with them. That's a mark of a good analyst. He's, he's become a great, great analyst for us. Chris Giolino, industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He follows all the fun companies, I think, like Deer. He gets to ride around on tractors and stuff like that. Is that part of the job? Oh, yeah. You go to an analyst day, you got to check out the merch. So they take, yeah, it's awesome. Okay. Yeah, so it's good stuff. They have a good time. Now, my job was better because I used to get to go to movie premieres for the right, media for companies. Disney and go out yeah. on cruise ships with Disney and all that kind of fun stuff. So. And now you're here in the and office. now I'm here. The, in one the, of the biggest in-person office proponents I've ever met. Exactly. And I've, <laughs> I've thrown in the talent. That. I've, I've, okay. I've kind of figured it all out. My kids are saying, forget about it. You've, you've lost that fight. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.